Coming up on Tech Nation, I speak with John Hennessy, from computer science professor to president of Stanford University. He is today the chairman of the board of Alphabet, the parent company of Google. We'll talk about his book, Leading Matters, Lessons from My Journey. Then if you think the internet is global with just the click of a mouse, think again. I speak with Keith Rockwell, the director of the Information and External Relations Division at the World Trade Organization. We'll talk about what technology in the cloud may mean to different nations. All this coming up on this week's Tech Nation. Let's take five with Moira Gunn. This is Five Minutes. Reality touched down when I got an email notification to all university faculty that there would be a one-minute campus-wide test of the emergency notification system while classes were in session. It would be simulating, and I'm quoting here, an active shooter incident and included suggestions about how to lead a discussion with our students about what to do. My mind went immediately back to a time when I was a young student myself, and I first experienced that the rude affairs of life can reach into the classroom, even if you don't quite understand it or aren't particularly interested. I understand now why the adults were on high alert. This was the time which followed the failed invasion of Cuba by CIA-backed counter-revolutionaries, and then later, in response, the Cuban Missile Crisis, wherein Cuba had installed nuclear-armed Soviet missiles. Remember, Cuba is just 90 miles from Florida, and the nuclear missiles were pointed right at us. Rhetoric was rising, and there was a sense, a belief, that the potential for nuclear attacks on U.S. soil was real, and this called for preparedness. We students were all supposed to bring in blankets and changes of underwear and toothpaste and the like, which were stored under the stage in the auditorium. I never got around to bringing mine in, and for some reason, no one bugged me about it. But there were plenty of announcements to do just that, and plenty of people did. And I also remember our classrooms. They were the type familiar to people in California. One outside wall, completely glass. Only in a sunny climb does that make sense. But in our case, those glass windows all faced in the direction of Moffett Field Naval Air Station, four miles away, and within reach of a nuclear explosion. A second set of blankets were placed under each of our desks, where our books should have been, and if the real thing happened, we were to somehow get under the desks and cover ourselves with the blankets. There must have been a drill, and while I don't exactly remember it, I do remember one girl among us. She had the temerity to tell the good sister that realistically, this wasn't going to help. If they dropped the big one, we were all goners. The danger could enter my classroom seems much more real now as I stare at a sheet of paper with the heading, Tips for Facilitating a Discussion on Active Shooter Preparedness. 
Number one, consider showing the U.S. Department of Homeland Security video entitled Options for Consideration, Run, Hide, Fight. Hmm, I thought, the last time there was nowhere to run, paper-thin places to hide, and no one can fight a nuclear explosion. But now we have the prospect of an active shooter. One person, one destructive technology. Was someone thinking I might fight such a shooter? And there it was, the very last discussion point. If you needed to incapacitate the shooter as a last resort, what would you do? You know, I don't know what I would do. With the very human options of flee, freeze, or fight, I'm afraid I might freeze. But who knows? You don't know what you're going to do unless and until you get there. Still, it's helpful to discuss this in advance. And then it hit me. The next class I'm teaching is in the new science building. And one wall of my classroom is floor-to-ceiling glass. I'm Moira Gunn. This is 5 Minutes. Five Minutes is produced at the studios of KQED-FM in San Francisco. Five Minutes is a production of Tech Nation Media. I'm Paul Lancor. From San Francisco, I'm Moira Gunn, and this is Tech Nation. Today on Tech Nation, I'll speak with John Hennessy, the former president of Stanford University and chairman of the board of Alphabet, the parent company of Google. He's here to talk about a lifetime of leadership lessons. Then I'll speak with Keith Rockwell, the director of the Information and External Relations Division at the World Trade Organization and its chief spokesperson. All that technology and information globally, it requires the collaboration and cooperation of every nation involved. Alphabet Chair John Hennessy has a long and diverse background. As a computer science professor with several Silicon Valley startups to his credit, to Stanford professor, and ultimately president of the university, and even membership on a number of nonprofit boards such as the Gordon and Betty Moore Foundation. I speak with him today about leading matters, lessons from my journey. Well, John, welcome back to Tech Nation. Thanks, Moira. I'm delighted to be here. And I mean, welcome back. By my reckoning, the last time you were on the show was February 1994. Oh, really? It was that long ago? Was, yeah, <laughs> when you're having fun, time flies. Um, you were on with, of course, your buddy uh, David Patterson from UC Berkeley. Right. And uh, uh, I was digging around trying to figure out what and when was the date and anything because now everything goes on the cloud. So you just look right back through your archive and you say, okay, well, now you have to go back through computers. I would have had to turn on a Mac SE20. <laughs> to <laughs> yes, exactly. What's exactly. in the archive? And, uh, but fortunately for us, there's cyber theft uh, in the internet. Some outfit, as my father would say, called Inside Computers, Technology in Eastern Europe has a copy of it. 
Wow. <laughs> and it says, it reads, Moira Gunn speaks with John Hennessy, professor, Stanford University, and David Patterson, professor, UC Berkeley, on their new book, Computer Organization and Design, the hardware-software interface. It was new. Right. It was new. Point. Labeled as tremendous rivals by the New York Times, <laughs> these friends have paired up again to write a book which describes the insides of computers. Cleverly written, which cannot possibly describe any computer textbook. Yeah, not a technical no, book. No, <laughs> not a technical book. Uh, cleverly written to enable the reader to use the book in to an appropriate level, both novices and computer professionals can learn about what makes computers work. Well, it turns out your friendship has worked out. Last year, you both together won the Turing Prize, the highest award in computer science. Right. It has worked out, and that work we did so many years ago really got this incredible impact over time. Uh, certainly driven by the fact that we switched to a mobile world, we switched to Internet of Things, that completely changed the trade-offs. And... I think the books that we did, both the graduate book and the undergraduate book, really shaped a whole generation of of scientists and techni- and engineers about how computers worked. So that was a it was a real reward for us. I still have the book. I better go back and see if you guys signed it. <laughs> yeah, uh, you can get. We'll sign it for you more anytime. <laughs> Uh, that would be good. Well, you were then a professor at Stanford. You were running the computer system lab, as I recall. And uh, and then you went on and did a few things. I did. After avoiding for many years any administrative roles, I then na- – naturally, you're a member. You're a good citizen, a member of the department. Your time comes. So I then went on became chairman of computer science, then dean of engineering, then for one year provost, and then for 16 years university president. And, of course, you retired from that. And I retired from that uh, to start a new uh, scholarship program uh, called the Knight Hennessy Scholars that really tries to think about how we build a new cohort of young leaders um, in all walks of life, government certainly, uh, but also in the corporate world as well as in the nonprofit world. And, frankly – part-time, just takes a few hours a month, you're the chairman of Alphabet, the parent company of Google. Uh, I am the chairman of Alphabet. I've been on that board for a long time, I think. And, from the start. Uh, weren't you there for the not, IPO? I was there before the IPO. Uh, so I was the first, um, uh, the new outside members that came in just before the IPO. Would you have been the dean of engineering at that point? No, I was already the president of the university. We forget that Sergey and Larry, who founded Google, that they were grad students in computer science. At, they were grad at, students. And did you know them? I, I did. That's when I first met them, uh, when they were both graduate students, in fact, and saw the prototype. Well, it was then, it, even then it was called Google, but it was the prototype of what would become the commercial product. Well, there's no doubt in my mind that this reads better than your last book. <laughs> uh-huh. Yes, I think this book is, it, it's about a set of, it's really a set of stories about things that I encountered during that uh, journey that I had, including my time in the Valley as well as my time in university. You started up several companies. Started several companies, which for me, those were incredible learning experiences. I think unless you've been in a startup, you don't realize how quickly you have to learn a completely different set of skills when you start a company because you're exposed to so many things that you've never had to address before. And that created for me a very compressed learning cycle. But many of those lessons carried over when I moved into university leadership. 
I have to say that, uh, boy, I see a lot of books go by. <laughs> like there's a this little assembly line going by me. No, no, no. Oh, yeah, that, no, no. But I do see these books on leadership. And I find this is slightly different. I, it's as if it's a a book about discovering yourself. Um, if you're going to lead, you'd better have a hard conversation with yourself. It is about it is about discovering yourself. And one of the stories I tell in the book is deciding whether or not to take the provost position, which would have drawn me out of my role as dean of engineering, where I, I basically I knew all the faculty, I knew what they did, I was comfortable with what they did, I could I could still have a small research program. But provost is the chief operating officer. It's a full-time job. And making the decision, deciding whether I wanted to do that, which basically meant stepping away from being more of an academic, more of a researcher and teacher, and really moving into university leadership full time. Well, let's also remember you were following Condoleezza Rice. I was. A little hard act to follow. Yeah, a hard <laughs> act to follow. And, uh, and I think it was an interesting time in the, in the university setting. I mean, universities are always – have a set of issues at any time that are bubbling on the stove that could erupt at any time, and um, as all large institutions do. Well, let's start with your first goal or concept or discipline, whatever you want to call it, humility. Uh, I was struck with one of your startup experiences, MIPS, you mentioned your first company. All those years ago in Silicon Valley fashion, there was 120 employees crisis. One day you had to lay off 30 on a Friday morning. By noon, they were gone. And uh, they assembled the remaining troops that afternoon. Uh, the new say CEO said, John, you got to get up and talk to these people. That turned out to be a personal growth experience. For it, you. Re it really was. I mean, it was really hard to do. You, you, in a small company, you know the people being laid off. Um, you realize that a mistake has been made. You certainly partly contributed to that mistake by at least not questioning the rate of expansion, which was the problem. We expanded too fast. But then you have to get people enthusiastic and energized about the goal of the company and that it's still feeling a great safe people. again. Yeah, feeling All safe these again. People around you feeling are going, committed. Boom. Right. Yeah. So that was a great learning experience because it puts you well. It puts you in the crucible, right? <laughs> you get tested and and you learn from that. And it turned out that was an incredibly valuable experience. Many years later, when the university, when the financial crisis occurred, and we had to do something similar at Stanford. And academics are very reluctant to do a layoff or do anything else. It operates more like civil service than it operates uh, like a corporation. But I had learned that if you're going to do a layoff, do it, do it fast. Don't perpetuate a budget cut over twenty, over ten years, or something like that, nipping away at the bud, um, and that—that that was what convinced the provost and I to do it quickly, get it over with, and get it behind us. Now, in that first instance, and and in the later one that you talk about, where does humility play a role? Well, first of all, admitting that you're going to have to step up and solve the problem and you're going to have to admit that part of the way you got there was perhaps making some bad decisions. That but also you made some bad that decisions. we made some bad decisions. We, the, the, yeah, collectively, the team. But you were bad. part of that team. Yeah. Um, so admitting that is important. The other thing I think that um, the, the provost and I found really important when we had to do the budget cut at the university, the first thing we did was – we took a salary cut, both of us. Personally. Personally. 
And that sent a message to everybody, oh, this is serious. <laughs> They're cutting their own salary. Um, but that was the right thing to do to get people on board and, and really um, get them to understand this was not a quick thing that was going to be over quickly. Well, so many times we think of leaders, it's like that's the guy in the most expensive suit, you know, oh. sharp guy, supreme confidence, you know, the the, the, the best technology guy, the whatever. You say uh, you might appear to be supremely confident, but humility makes you earn your confidence. What's the difference? I've met very few people who are good leaders that have that degree of confidence from day one. They learn it by lessons over time, by being put in tough situations and recovering from them, by owning their mistakes as opposed to avoiding their mistakes. And I think that helps you then be more self-confident about a situation. You need to retain a sense of humility because if you ever feel you're the smartest person in the room and you have all the answers, that's the beginning of a disaster. Clue to yourself. <laughs> I'm feeling smart, smart, smart. Yeah. <laughs> Tone it down. And you're simply not. I mean, and that's one of the great things about being in a university. You're surrounded by people who are experts in their field and you know more than anybody else only about a very slim set of things. You may be the decision maker. But you want all those people to feel comfortable putting their input into that decision-making process. This also goes to the heart of Silicon Valley and Silicon Valley behavior. I go out throughout the world and I hear, oh, you know, it's a, it's a lesson in failure. You accept failures. You, um, you eat failure for breakfast and stuff. And I go, no, no, it's a culture of successful failure. And in a sense, that's kind of what you're describing. Yeah, it is It is very much a culture of that. I mean, we have a, a culture in the Valley that allows people to do risky things, risky smart things, not risky not just stupid anything. things, not just anything, <laughs> and not to risk certain things, not to endanger other people or things. But if you take a risk that is reasonable and people believe was worth taking and it doesn't work out, provided you can articulate what the messages you learned from that, I think you're not penalized in the Valley. And that is a big advantage in terms of inspiring people to reach for something different. And you also said something, and I'm going to jump ahead. You have a number of, of, of points here. One is being of service to others. That decision, that incorporation of the welfare of others, we don't usually talk about that, say, in the School of Management. <laughs> no. In fact, one of, the, one of the critiques that's been making the rounds recently is that We've educated too many people in MBAs and management schools that their service is purely to shareholders, that they serve only shareholders. My objection to that is that can be a very short-term focus. Let's face it. If you don't believe you also service your users, service your employees, you're not going to have a long-term success because you, both your user community, your customers um, – and your employees are critical to long-term success. And I think getting that right, getting that mentality right, um, and a lot of the issues we have, whether locally in the Valley or globally in Washington, are about forgetting about that a leader is a servant, not, not a dictator. 
You're listening to Tech Nation. I'm Moira Gunn, and my guest today is John Hennessy, a former and longtime president of Stanford University. He is today the chairman of the board of Alphabet, the parent company of Google, and serves on a number of boards, including the Gordon and Betty Moore Foundation. He's here today with Leading Matters, Lessons from My Journey. Here's another thing people can have some trouble with uh, on a number of levels. You talk about authenticity, the practice of speaking honestly and being true, not just to yourself, but to others. By that, you don't mean advocating loudly for your point. <laughs> no, no. I mean being uh, being honest and direct with people, really trying to um, ensure that you're broadcasting a realistic and honest assessment of where things are. And this is really about trust because you can mislead people once or twice, but if you do it multiple times, you lose their trust. And then when you need them to really do something difficult and hard, they don't trust you. They won't have faith. They won't have a commitment. Um, on the other hand, if you've been honest with them, then you at least have an opportunity to lead them through dangerous territory um, that is required uh, uh, certainly for all large institutions run into those kinds of things. And all small ones do as well. And small companies do as well. Absolutely. Absolutely. And authenticity, a repeated application of authenticity does lead to the trust. It does lead to trust. And it's it, the flip side of that is – the CEO who always advertises the message that's overly optimistic, that's too good, leads to a breakdown in trust with the employees and with the shareholders and with the customers. So that that's a crucial issue. And some of the hard things are sometimes telling people things they don't necessarily want to hear. Um, it's great when there's good news, but how do you share that there's difficult news? Well, we had a person who uh, always went into the big meetings and led the meetings and the first 10 things that person would say were always fabulous about what we were doing. Well, the first time uh, that person did it, uh, well, that was, wow, we're really doing, well, the fifth time, and we're in a lot of trouble. And you're like, oh, so that's your agenda. You announce 10 good things, whether they're true or not. People were like putting fingers in their ears going, no, 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 I'm not listening. I'm not listening. Okay, is the meeting going to start? Yeah. There are many ways to undermine trust, even if you're doing everything else right, you have to really look at yourself for that. You do. You do. And I think it's it, it requires a degree of honesty with yourself and a willingness sometimes to uh, step up and, and say some difficult things in order to get that, build that trust and build a shared commitment to what the goals are. Well, I think people are beginning to get the sort of the initial gist of what's going on here. So before we go on, I wanted to ask you about you see a leadership crisis today in government, corporations, nonprofits, uh well beyond the well shareholder, let's reward the shareholder here. Uh and is that possibly related to what you also talk about the changing nature of leadership in the 21st century? It is certainly related to that. Um, the role that social media has taken as a sometimes as an echo chamber, um, but I think we're we're in a difficult situation. I mean, partly, if you think of leadership as service, the next question you ask is, who do you serve? 
Well, I know that I hope that everybody who is in Washington, D.C. representing us um, believes they're serving the entire country, not just the people that voted for them, but the entire country. Likewise, I hope that the the team at at Google is thinking about serving shareholders in the long term, but also ensuring that our employees feel committed to the company and that our users trust search results, for example, and really have faith in them. So getting that engagement and getting getting people to think about how to make that work right is key. So that's certainly changing. Yes. Um, but where's the crisis? I think the crisis is, is several fold. First of all, some of it's purely unethical behavior. You know, I think one of the things that we need to understand is that most of these things that really go awry didn't start out by crossing a big red line and doing something that was absolutely wrong from day one. It started slippery slope, little missteps, step by step by step. And I think in modern society, one of the things that happens is things move so fast that that accelerates at a rate. Um, you know, Abraham Lincoln used to say um, the the best way not to get caught telling a lie is never to tell one because the the solution to lying once is to do it again and then you slowly uh, snowball. So I think the rate at which things move, pressure. Certainly there's a lot of pressure on people to succeed, whether it's a young startup that's trying to do something really disruptive or an established company that's trying to grow. Um, there's a lot of pressure and you've got to – one of the things we've, we're te- talking to our scholars about is – You've got to know where your ethical guidelines and your signposts are ahead of time because when you're in that situation in real time, high pressure, if you don't know where your boundaries are, it's very easy to take step one across that line and then that can become the unraveling. Now we get to the hard part, courage. Mm. (laughs) Courage. And we – you know, one of the things I tried to distinguish is – Courage from bravery. And bravery is what happens when there's an immediate crisis, a soldier under fire. Courage is about that long-term commitment to do the right thing, to face up to a situation. And those can be difficult situations. And in a leadership position, you're often called upon at a moment of crisis to stand up and say the right things, rally the troops, give comfort to people. And that's where courage becomes really, really important, taking your values and turning them into action. I always say that. People say, well, I wouldn't do this and I would do this. And it's like, you don't know what you do till you get there. Yeah. And you have to live a while to be in enough situations to go, okay, here we are. How am I going to act? Yeah, you how, do. You how do. I would project I would act. Well, that was that was a wonderful conversation I had with the wall, I guess. This is meaningful. It is meaningful. And in a leadership position, your team's there, but you're out front. And so you've got to – obviously, you do the best you can to prepare and try and make the right decision. But then you have to have the courage to go and step up and represent that decision. Can everybody be a leader? Can everybody see themselves as a leader? I mean, we can't have we can't have uh, all managers and <laughs> – Yeah, I, I think um, – 
you know, people would probably tell you, you can grow, you can learn. And I think it's really experiential learning. Yes, you can read. I, I'm a great believer, of, as you've seen in the book, about reading biographies of great people and seeing you how they... you quite the reading list. I do have a long you reading quite list. The, quite the Tech Nation interview guest list in the it, back it is of a, your it is, a, it is a long list of, of people. But I'm, I'm very fond of, of biographies and seeing how people wrestled with really difficult problems over time. That doesn't necessarily translate directly to a situation you're in, but it gives you some insight. I've been speaking with Alphabet Chair John Hennessy, the author of Leading Matters, Lessons from My Journey. We'll talk more after a break. Podcasts of Tech Nation and Tech Nation Health are available at NPR One, iTunes, Stitcher, and other podcast syndication outlets. Coming up in the second half of our show, Keith Rockwell from the World Trade Organization. He'll explore how global information and technology is an important issue for and between nations. Stay with us. Listening to Tech Nation, I've been speaking with John Hennessy, the former and longtime president of Stanford University, and today the chairman of the board of Alphabet, the parent company of Google. He's here today with Leading Matters, Lessons from My Journey. We'd just been discussing a reading list he'd included with his book. I'm very fond of, of biographies and seeing how people wrestled with really difficult problems over time. And that doesn't necessarily translate directly to a situation you're in, but it gives you some insight into how to deal with that uh, kind of situation. And you learn. You learn along the way. And I think it's that experiential reading, but then going through the experiences step by step. That progress is one of the reasons I think you see in many cases you take promising young people and rather than let them develop, you, you sometimes try to catapult them up the ladder. And then they're not successful because they didn't learn the smaller lessons of dealing with difficult situations. And all of a sudden, you put them in a situation where it's a pressure cooker and they're just not ready for it. 
I learned that early on. I mean, we took some people who were promising young leaders and we advanced them just a little too fast without ensuring that they had the real opportunity to develop the skills. And that was a lesson I had to learn along the way. We can talk about collaboration and teamwork. We can talk about innovation. One thing that's absolutely clear is you need lifelong intellectual curiosity. Yeah, I'm an I'm a intellectually curious person. I always have been. I've been a voracious reader. I'm interested in a lot of things. And I think for me, that provided – a university is just an incredible place to be because you can walk around and see all kinds of interesting things happening. Similarly, today, I can go over to, go over to Google X and walk around and see all these incredible things people are thinking about that are really out or there. Or you can right? stay home and just Google everything you ever wanted. You can. You can. <laughs> you can. But being engaged in those things and trying to understand, you're not going to be an expert in those fields. Uh, certainly not. But trying to see – what are people excited about? Where do they see an opportunity to really make a breakthrough possibly? And, and understanding how that might be applied and how you might take advantage of it. Well, many people are afraid of change and just plain new information challenges that sense of change coming on. Yeah. It's probably somewhat easier for somebody coming from a technical background. Change is the nature of life. You're in a field We, we live to build changing. change. <laughs> exactly. And it's constantly changing. And a creative destruction is part of what ha occurs in the valley. And you have to become comfortable with that. Um, let's actually back up a little bit. Collaboration and teamwork. Mm. Many people say, well, we know how to work on teams. But not everybody does. What do you do on a team? Everybody's supposed to be working together, and you can see this person over here is dynamiting it. Or you just have a bad actor. Yeah. You, know? you have a bad actor, or I think you have a alpha male who won't let other people participate and contribute. Um, I think your, your, your job is to really try to get the input from everybody um, to have them – to have everybody feel like they're part of the process. And that's crucial. I mean, particularly if you're doing something like making a strategic plan for a corporation or a university, having everybody feel like they've had an opportunity to contribute to the shaping of the plan, which may not come out to be what anybody really thinks is their exact version of what they would choose, but they feel like they've had an opportunity to participate. And sometimes out of that, of course, you get that brilliant insight, right, that comes along and you realize – Yes, this is a turning point. This is something we should double down on because it's a unique opportunity. Now, the final thing you have, you actually go through storytelling, but you already told us you wrote, you wrote a lot of stories in your yeah. book. So <laughs> storytelling, very important as a skill, as navigating through your, your life and your, your career, whatever it is, what effort is you, you want to move forward. But finally, um, you want people to think about their legacy, what they'll – leave behind. Let's talk about that. I don't think we talk about that very much. We don't. We don't. I think we're so caught up in the moment often that we don't think about what may last. And and certainly running things and keeping them running and keeping them progressing is important. But what do you want to leave behind? How do you want to see the institution or the organization you leave be different when you're gone? And that's something that it's, sometimes it's a cultural change. Sometimes it's embracing something, new directions. Um, and sometimes it's purely ensuring that they'll be able – that they're excellent. They're even better than they used to be. Um, 
Yeah, so it can it can depend on the organization or the institution. Or just what you do in your everyday life. What is your legacy going to be? Yeah. I don't think we think about that very much. We don't think about it very much. Partly we're we're intensely busy living from day to day, so it's sometimes hard to think about that. And that really for me as I began to get close to the end of my presidency and I realized I was probably going to step down in a in a year or two. That's what I really started to think about, and that was the the origin of the Knight Hennessy Scholars was really a growing sense of a problem with leadership. And if I was going to really start something, do one more thing, what should I do? And what you did was put something in, create something that had a life of its own. So you left a legacy behind that could grow, not right. just a, I did this. You could watch what could happen. Right. That's an interesting perspective on creating a legacy. Yeah. So that is – I, mean, I think that partly this is born of a perspective that universities believe they're going to be here in a permanent sense while corporations, it's up and down. I mean the, the great corporations – Don't tell well, Google that. <laughs> no, no, no. But it's – our goal is to ensure that it's, it doesn't – I'll cut that part down. out of the interview. It's OK. <laughs> no, but if you think about – I mean th I think about when I came into the computer industry. IBM and Digital Equipment Corporation and Bell Labs were the heroes, right? And you see where that is today. It's a very different situation. A university – in some sense, the most valuable. There's lots of great research, but if you think about the difference that educated the educated students you create, and so as we thought about our program, I'm thinking, okay, I want to help develop somebody who, maybe not for 20 or 30 years, but in 20 or 30 years, are doing something really important in our society, and that's a long-term investment in in people. But I think it's also an opportunity to create something that really makes a positive change over time. Well, John, I hope you come back in 25 years <laughs> or sooner. I hope you come back sooner. You're always welcome on Tech Nation. You don't have to write a book. Thanks for coming in. Thank you, Moira. I enjoyed it. My guest today is John Hennessy. His book is Leading Matters, Lessons from My Journey. It's published by Stanford Business Books. I'm Moira Gunn. You're listening to Tech Nation. My next guest is Keith Rockwell, the Director of the Information and External Relations Division at the World Trade Organization and its Chief Spokesperson. Before we start, I'd like to place this interview in a timeline of global events. On March 1st, 2018, prior to my visit, President Trump announced the intention to impose a tariff of 25% on foreign-made steel and 10% on foreign-made aluminum. Later that day, the Washington Post noted the president's move, relying upon a little-used provision of U.S. trade law, is expected to trigger immediate legal challenges by U.S. trading partners at the World Trade Organization and invite retaliation against American exports. While many readers may have focused on the word retaliation, it is important to understand that the United States has international agreements in place regarding the imposition of tariffs without the consideration of other nations and vice versa. Specifically, since the United States is a member of the World Trade Organization, it follows the WTO agreements vis-a-vis -vis tariffs and trade. The only basis allowed under WTO rules for introducing such a tariff would be that import of the article 
in this case steel and aluminum, threatens or impairs the national security, a rule which is seldom invoked. But the U.S. insisted that the tariff was needed to discourage the import of foreign steel and aluminum, which would in turn protect national security. Still, the Washington Post was right. On April 9th, China, also a WTO member, requested WTO dispute consultations with the United States concerning certain duties imposed on the imports of steel and aluminum products. Just short of two months later, the EU also followed suit in a case it filed with the WTO on June 1st. This interview took place just prior to the EU filing. But there's more to trade than physical objects such as steel and aluminum or even computers and cell phones. Intellectual property today is frequently embodied in digital information in the cloud or in application software programs, which can also be stored in the cloud and accessed remotely in a manner called software as service. The WTO also works with its member nations to reach global trading policy in this regard. With respect to these services in the cloud, there are no easy solutions here, as we will learn today. I was able to speak with Keith Rockwell at the World Trade Organization in Geneva, Switzerland. Keith, welcome back to Tech Nation. Thanks, Moira. Nice to see you again. Now, remind us, the WTO, the World Trade Organization, we're here in Geneva, Switzerland. What does it do? I think the best way to think about the WTO is to think of it as, as a contractual arrangement between governments. Governments, and there's 164 of them here, they pledge to each other to follow the rules of the organization, the rules which they themselves have negotiated and agreed. And these rules, they involve commitments, and they also involve privileges. So you, for example, will commit to open up your market to a certain extent via tariffs, via regulations, which are clear and transparent, so the other 163 members know exactly what they're getting themselves into in terms of a, uh, of a business arrangement. And more importantly, the businesses in your country know what the terms of trade, the rules of the game will be in each of these markets where they go. So it helps reduce uncertainty. It helps to uh, make it much more predictable and much more stable in terms of the trading environment. Now, President Trump recently announced a tariff. Do they have to inform the WTO? Do they have to get a... How does that work? This is one of the important elements of our work is that when you make a change to your trade policy, you have to send a notification to the WTO spelling out what you've done. And in fact, this is true about tariffs. It's true about subsidies. We have important negotiations in agriculture and in reducing harmful fish subsidies that lead to depletion of global fish stocks. And what the Americans have said is, in order for us to negotiate this fully, there needs to be a much better record of notification so we know exactly what we're confronting. So yes, that element of transparency and, and we also have each year a review of the trade policies of key players. And, and governments will comment on trade policy changes, sometimes positively, sometimes not so positively. The whole idea is that you understand 
the trading environment in which you are, uh, are, are acting. Let's say a country said, didn't we agree to all these things and perhaps that tariff or another tariff were, was unfair, doesn't agree with what we all agreed to? What could happen then? Well, governments, if they believe that their rights under the agreements, and there's about 60 or so agreements that we have, if they believe that a trading partner has not fulfilled the terms of that contract, they can take them to the dispute settlement system. And indeed, when the Americans announced that they were applying tariffs on steel and aluminum, a number of countries have come to the dispute settlement system to, sought, to seek a way to redress what they believe to be um, something that is not in line with the rules of the WTO. The Americans maintain that because they are implementing these tariffs in the name of national security, they have an exemption from the rules. The others don't take that view. Okay, so we're not going to solve that here. <laughs> Probably not. Probably not. But obviously, these countries have to get together periodically just to mull over a whole big long list of things. Right? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And, it's, and we're not only about disputes. We're about trying to write new rules of the game. Now, one of the things I would, I would say about our work right now is that we are in a pivotal time. We are transitioning away from ways of doing things that had not produced the kinds of results that people wanted to a different way of doing business. And this really kicked off in Buenos Aires in December when we had our 11th ministerial conference. While we were there, groups of members, not the entire membership, but let's say about half the membership, decided they would go ahead and begin to scope out the space for making rules in, for example, e-commerce, digital trade, in the issue of investment facilitation to help developing countries, in the issue of how to help micro, small, and medium-sized companies to participate in global trade, how to better advance the economic empowerment of women. So I would say in each of these groups, we have 80-plus members, not all, and not all the members are in favor of work going on in these areas because either they'd like to see things that we haven't yet finished, like agriculture, sorted out, or they believe that they are not ready to discuss, let's say, e-commerce because of the digital divide that exists between rich and poor countries. Now, the membership is diverse in its outlook, and so the opinions that people have on e-commerce vary widely. But let's say we've got 80 or 90 members that are now going forward, and of all of these areas I mentioned, this is the one with a concrete objective of negotiating new rules, and many of the members are impatient. Many of the uh, companies in your part of the world are pushing hard, saying, let's go, we need global rules in these areas if we are to be able to have a more certain, transparent, predictable environment in which to do business. Well, we have a lot of technology coming down the line. What are you guys talking about? Well, the, the conversations are in the initial stages. The work only began really in January. There was a commitment, this so-called joint initiative on e-commerce, which now is looking at, we have all together right now, 11 proposals, and they cover a variety of different things. Some are strictly related to the movement of goods across borders. So, for example, e-contracts, e-signatures, spam, consumer protection, 
and they really are based on greater transparency and knowledge of what it is that you need to do in order to do the, the transactions required to trade electronically, digitally. There are many other issues as well that people are interested in. Data flows, for example. The issue of data localization. Do you have to hold your data on a local server in that domestic market in order to do business there digitally? Or can you simply have the data flowing across the border? Now, this issue becomes more complicated for a lot of reasons, not least the fact that there are different views about, for example, consumer privacy. Here in Europe, on the, at the end of this week, we're going to see a, a major new law implemented which will have very strict guidelines that companies have to follow in terms of protecting consumer privacy, various t forms of data that you might have in terms of your purchasing preferences, etc., etc. The rules here will not be the same as they are in the U.S., which will not be the same as they are in China, for example. Now, those questions, data flows, data localization, those are much thornier issues um, which would require, I think, a lot more intensive negotiation. Whether the members seek a great big deal involving all of these things or whether they will decide to go after smaller deals in the areas I mentioned about the movement of goods, well, time will tell. Well, everybody thinks everything's in the cloud. The data is out there, and it's true. Google could technologically put every single one of its servers in California hmm. and serve the entire world. Yes. Well, wait a minute. That means that the source of that data would simply be in the United States, and yet it's flying across international borders. So one way, perhaps, as we're talking here, is to say if you put a server inside each nation that has to serve that nation, then the nation has control over a physical object and what's on it. Huge. That's right. Huge implications. And, of course, that would be very costly for a big company with global aspirations. If you have to put a server in every country where you're operating, well, that's going to in incur it's costs. It's a bottleneck. It's a bottleneck. But on the other hand, they say, well, we need to have certain a certain degree of control so we know that you're adhering to our rules. Um, and so what you're seeing is a bit of a fragmentation in terms of how it is people do business in these countries. These technologies are uh, not that new, but still the rules have not caught up. The last major agreement we did, which led to the creation of the WTO, those negotiations finished in 1994. And a and lot has happened since You couldn't even then. call each other on a cell phone. No, I didn't have a cell phone. Yeah. The guy from Reuters did. It was about as big as this table. I remember that, <laughs> thinking, wow, what technology. Wow. Yeah. We could move the table. There yeah. you go. So, so that's, I mean, you know, we have not caught up. And you're seeing now a lot of entities in Silicon Valley, for example, deeply interested in what's happening here. We're having a meeting of uh, uh, businesses here in Geneva organized by the International Chamber of Commerce and the B20, the business leaders part of the G20. They've organized it here. We've helped them set it up. There'll be a lot of California companies here, and these are among the issues we're going to be discussing. Now, cloud computing, it's not just data in the cloud. It's software as service in the cloud. Wherever you are, got a connection to the Internet, you can pull down or operate on the application that's sitting up there so you can have 
an application created by a company in one country, and people from lots of countries can then use it. Are you trying to solve that as well, or well, at least address it? Cloud computing is one of the issues people are discussing. Now, I mentioned a bunch of the of the issues that people are discussing in these joint initiatives. Another one is domestic regulation in services. And what I would say is that if you're looking at facilitating the, the participation of smaller enterprises, if you're looking at digital trade, if you're looking at domestic regulation and services, there's a lot of overlap and intersection among these issues. If you're a smaller enterprise and you want to trade, well, you've got to use the Internet to do it because you can't have a presence everywhere. You can reach markets that in the, that in the past would have been absolutely fanciful to imagine you could be trading there. But now it's possible. But again, the question of domestic regulation of services, what are your regulations in your market as they pertain, for example, to cloud services? In many countries, they have not adapted. And this, this again shows you there is a digital divide. Many sub-Saharan African countries, they don't have the legal infrastructure yet to begin to discuss this. Now, what many of the proponents of these issues are saying is, you're right, we need to address the digital divide. Let's do it as part of this negotiation so that we can facilitate the development of your, of your legal infrastructure as well as your physical infrastructure so that you can participate in what we call a, this is a technical assistance. Let's provide you with the, with the teaching, the training, and, and help you to garner the investment you need and that brings back the investment facilitation question I mentioned. Again, a lot of overlap between these various issues. All of them are proceeding at about the same, the same pace. Um, and we'll have to wait and see what happens. But there's a lot of buzz going on now involving these issues. Okay, I'm going to say the word many people just freeze on, and rightly so, blockchain, <laughs> which I guess is one word, or is it two words? I don't know. I, don't, yeah, we'll find, yeah, well, it's, I wonder what it is in French. I'll have to try I and don't know. You must. You must find out what it is in French. Um, one aspect of it that makes it so interesting is that it's, it's, it's invincible in the sense that when you record a transaction or a piece of data, it records it automatically on a whole lot of ledgers, a whole lot of data files all over the place so that don't belong to you, so that no one can come in and just change it and pretend, oh, no, it was a different transaction. No, we have the original one. Well, those ledgers are by people in all kinds of countries all over the world. Yeah, yeah that's, this is absolutely right. And this is part of the discussion we're having in terms of the actual transactional elements of e-commerce, in terms of e-contracts. And it could be that these advances in technology will help move along the negotiation because some of the concerns people might have expressed, if you have this tried and tested method of secure contracts, secure signatures, that should make it easier. But then you're going to have a question is what do the domestic regulations say in each of our different member governments' uh, um, markets? Because if there needs to be a degree of harmony and, again, this, this all-important word transparency so that the companies know what it is that they're getting themselves into when they decide to do business in these various markets. 
and even the 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 little guy, if you will, that we're always like, okay, we talk big, we go all the way down to the little guy. In the case of blockchain, there's a thriving business that says, okay, I want to certify that these exist, these records exist in a whole lot of ledgers. And then they say, great, I'll do that. And they go out and they follow it down and they cert certify it. As they go to each country in a, a new perspective, they might be going through server after server after server in addition to the data itself to be recognized in each country. It's, an, it's a very interesting proposition. Well, it is. It is. I mean, and if you think about it in the past, to track down information, to go from office to office across borders in different continents, that was basically the purview of the big, rich companies. The smaller folks, they couldn't do this. Now they can. Now opportunities are being opened to them. I think, particularly in the U.S., more smaller enterprises are involved in international trade than they know. Because a lot of times they make components and other parts for things like uh, Boeing aircraft or automobiles or a full range of other things, uh, technological products, hardware, um, uh, chips, all kinds of things that are then exported. And they may not realize that they are part of that export success story. But what you're talking about is people who provide services as well as goods who are much smaller don't necessarily know about the opportunities that are out there. They've always assumed it's too complicated. We had an agreement a couple of years ago called the Trade Facilitation Agreement, which we talked about a couple of years ago, which is aiming at reducing all the red tape, the bureaucratic entanglements that have heretofore prevented smaller enterprises from getting into international markets. And in many ways, these other discussions I've talked about, whether it's e-commerce or investment facilitation, they've used the trade facilitation model as a template because the idea is simplify, get rid of red tape, don't have people traipsing all over town to find what they need, have a single window, a one-stop shop where they can get the information they need. And that kind of thing, that kind of mentality, and we've been pushed very hard by business on this, they want fewer of these entanglements. For them, the real costs come if it's a too complex, too cumbersome to engage in this kind of sales effort, they're not going to do it. So try and make it as simple as possible. Obviously, you need to have in place regulation, but keep the regulation straightforward, make it easy to obtain this information, and that way you can encourage these smaller folks to get involved and, and do some trading. Well, Keith, as always, a pleasure. I hope you'll, you'll come and see us again. We'd love to. Thanks very much, Moira. Tech Nation and its regular segment, Biotech Nation, are produced at the studios of KQED-FM in San Francisco. Executive producer is Matt Gardner. The director of technical production is Monte Carlos. And audio engineers include Howard Gelman, Seal Muller, and Larry Upton. Our theme music was composed by Ann Nochtrieb-Zessiger and Robert Powell, with title creation provided by NameLab Incorporated of San Francisco. Program information and Internet audio is available on the web at technation.com. Tech Nation and Biotech Nation are productions of Tech Nation Media. I'm Paul Lancourt.